I need to give an, an apology to you. Um, you've probably considered this situation uh, already, at least some of you may have. And that is that obviously we're not going to finish our study of Pilgrim's Progress before the end of the year. I mean, for one thing, two Sundays, you know, we won't even be meeting Christmas and New Year's. And uh, next week is our last week then that we'll have together before the beginning of the next year. And, and my apology is this. I mean, I, I, I've, I've never apologized before with regard to, you know, we, we don't have any time schedule for how long our studies go. But I apologize to any of you who have come in to meet with us and you are normally in another class and this is going to go further and I hope it hasn't interfered with your next study in another class. And I apologize if I have done that. Please don't drop out before we've come to the end of this. Please don't drop out. All right. As you can see on the screen here, we have come to lecture number eight, the worshipers of wealth. I couldn't get through the previous lesson in one shot. We had to take two shots at Vanity Fair and then the trial that was there. It is my earnest expectation that today lesson eight will be accomplished in one shot. That's my earnest expectation. And I think it's doable, even though you have three pages in front of you rather than the normal two, which would seem to speak against it. <clears throat> but I think we're good to go. So without any further delay, let's go. And if you would look at the notes, we have an introductory paragraph. Evangelists had told Christian and faithful that they would soon come into a town where they would be sorely beset by enemies and one or both of them would become a martyr. Remember, a martyr is one who seals his testimony with his life's blood. When they entered into the fair, the people were thrown into a hubbub for four reasons. I think we'll not take time right now to rehearse those four reasons. In all their mistreatment, they did not answer in kind, but behaved themselves wisely and soberly. And that had an impact on people in the town. Now, for our preliminary look at the Word, at the word of God today, uh, it's going to deal with riches. Riches. I've entitled this lesson, The Worshippers of Wealth. And as we look into the scripture, we can spend just a couple minutes here talking about the alluring snare of riches. Now, I have no idea what your economic status is. I don't. Nor do you have any idea what mine is. But I do know this. None of us, wherever we are, whether we are up in a trillion mil trillionaires category, which I don't think any of you are, or down in the slightly above, you know, the lower economic brackets, none of us are immune <coughs> to the kind of temptations that are presented in this chapter. None of us are immune 
from becoming, even if it's in a small degree, from becoming a worshiper of wealth. You might say, no, I would never do that. Well, the godly and the wicked. If you look at number one, a little Q&A for us. Can you name three people from the Bible who were wealthy but godly as well? Well, I've written the answers in for you. And there could be more answers than this, to be sure. But these are certainly prominent answers. Abraham certainly fits the category of one who was wealthy but godly in addition. Second of all, Solomon was one who was wealthy. I mean, he fits in that highest category. Now, Kathy just gave me the signal right here. And you know the complexity of Solomon's life. But God blessed him with incredible riches. And God blessed him with that because, you know, when Solomon didn't request riches, but he requested a mind to be able to rule the people wisely and well, God blessed him with riches. Uh, But, you know, his life, you know, took a nosedive and then, came back up again by God's grace. And then, finally, Job. You know, maybe, maybe the first written book of our Bible, maybe. Certainly the setting is in the patriarchal world, it seems, and and Job was one of the wealthiest men in the world at the very beginning of the book, and then the roof fell in. But at the very end of the book, he's even more wealthy than he was at the beginning. Well, three examples there. A second question, can you name three who were rich but wicked? Well, number one, dives. Who's dives? We should pronounce it dives. Dives is the Latin word for rich man in what some call, and I don't have a problem with it, the parable found in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is not given a name in the parable. Lazarus is given a name. But dives comes from the Latin word for this, and so popularly you may see it referred to as the parable of dives and Lazarus, or the story of dives and Lazarus. He, he was very wealthy. He fared sumptuously every day. He did. He was wicked. Number two, the wicked, as they are described in Psalm chapter 10. Let me just read you what Psalm chapter 10 and verse 3 says. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. The wicked. And then thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Can you picture Nebuchadnezzar walking on the porch of his absolutely magnificent (laughs) palace and looking at everything and saying, look what I did. Look what I did. And what happened? He became an animal for a while. He became an animal for a while. So in Scripture, there are abundant. I've just listed three for each of these. There are abundant examples of both, the godly and the wicked, who are rich. So let's move on to a little bit more here. And you could open your Bible to Luke chapter 12 with me. And I've just put a picture on the screen here, an artistic representation of Jesus 
preaching to multitudes on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee. I love this particular artist right here. But let's make some observations. Let's make some observations here. And to do so, we are going to Luke chapter 12 and we'll begin reading in verse 13. So give attention to God's word here. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, Take heed and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my gain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, I've filled in all the blanks for you. I apologize for doing that again. I believe you are capable of doing that. There's something overwhelmed me here. The question from the crowd was prompted by covetousness. Jesus puts his finger on that right away. The reason that question was asked is because the man was covetous. Note this. This is very significant. The Pharisees interpreted material prosperity as a sign of divine blessing. If you were rich, if you were wealthy, God was blessing you in that way. Now again, we look at the examples up higher on the sheet and see we had examples both sides of the thing. So Jesus gave a parable to them. And this is one of the more familiar parables, I think. It is variously named, but very popularly, it is referred to as the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool. I would say, to expand on that a little bit, it is the story of the rich man who was afflicted with the bigger barn syndrome. That's a good way of putting it. Bigger barns. I need bigger barns for all that I have. Couple observations here, and this is really uh, going rather quickly, but I think we can make these observations here. This man had an abundant harvest. That's an understatement. It, it, it kind of gives us some positive things related to him. I mean, he must have been a hard worker. You, you don't have an abundant harvest like this and be a, uh, you know, a sluggard. You don't. He was a hard worker, and we also see from this he was a planner. He, he planned ahead, planned for the future. That's not a bad thing, is it? No, it's not. But 
The second thing with regard to his abrupt homecoming reveals these things. He was selfish. He was selfish. I'm, 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 I'm going to build, tear down my barns now, build bigger ones, put everything in my barns, and then I'm just going to sit back, put my feet up, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, you know. And the other thing that is so sobering in this is that he failed to consider his own mortality. That's, that's not in the picture at all. Not in the picture at all. Listen, how can anybody neglect to think, at least with passing thoughts, about their own mortality? Because everybody in this world dies. Everybody. There have been very few exceptions to that. You know that. Very, very few. And God called him a fool. And the last line of this section of verses, verse 21, Jesus' words, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And is not rich toward God. What's involved in being rich toward God well, I hope I have not made a mistake in doing this, but I'm going to flip over to that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and read to you a few of these verses right here. I think they're very apropos. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And skipping toward the latter part of the chapter, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be hard, haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy that they, uh, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Being rich toward God. You know, it's a, it's a time of year when commercialism rides the crest of a huge wave, huge wave, and it beckons to us. And, and we all, probably without exception in the room, are, are buying Christmas gifts for various ones, family and close friends and all that kind of stuff. And we want to do those things. But make sure that we're not neglecting to be rich toward God. And, and the things that I just read, from First Timothy chapter 6 give us some clues about how to do that. But 
persons and persons and places along the way. Uh, faithful is killed. That was probably the last picture that we saw in the last lesson. And hopeful comes along. Hopeful comes out of the city of Vanity Fair and joins with Christian on the pilgrimage. And as they continue, as pilgrims now, the very first individual that they encounter is an individual with a very strange name, I should say, of Byens. Byens. Byens is a man from the town of Fair Speech, may I say, first of all. The, the term Byens that Bunyan chose to use here is drawn from that which means literally something which is beside the main path, that is something of a secondary or incidental importance. Uh, that gives you a clue as to this man. He is from the town of Fair Speech, but this wealthy place that he lives in is obsessed with money and upward a social mobility. Upward social mobility. You have any clue what that means? <laughs> I, I think we all understand what it means. Maybe if not from personal experience, you know what that means. How many people in this world are concerned with upward social mobility and, and, and maybe that's their highest concern? Um, he's a shallow person. A shallow person without strong convictions and he worships worldly success. That's the man that Bunyan calls by-ends. Notice the next thing, and I filled it in for you again. Almost the whole town are his relatives. Almost the whole town are his relatives. Uh, here's a good picture from that, and I don't know whether I can identify every single person in the picture, but I know there's a couple ladies in the picture here, and one of them I think I must be able to name here. But here are the names that Bunyan gives to the people here. Boom, there they are. They just came tumbling down, and here's a couple more for good measure. Their names are My Lord Turnabout, my Lord Time Server, My Lord Fair Speech, Mr. Smooth Talk, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, Mr. Two Tongues, who very interestingly happens to be the parson, and finally Lady Feigning's daughter, who is the wife of Byans. Let's hear Bayan's speaking some more. Tis true, we somewhat differ in religion from those of the stricter sort. Would we fall into that category? Those of the stricter sort, I think, yeah. But yet in, uh, yet but in two small points, two, two little relatively <laughs> insignificant things. First, we never strive against wind and tide. Anything that's against us, eh, we're not for trying to head into that. 
Not at all. And the second thing, and I love this, and this is stuck in my mind from the first time I seriously read the book. We are always most zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers. What does that mean? I, I think it means when religion is dressed to the hilt, you know? So, where does that go? <clears throat> Christian figured it out that this must be none other than the knave called Byans and asked him so. Byans insisted that it was not his name, but only a nickname given to him by those who can't stand him. But he is called Byans, and he is the epitome of what that term meant back in that time. Um, when Byans wished to become their traveling companion, Christian emphasized that to do so would require him to go against wind and tide and be willing to stand with religion in his rags and when bound with iron. So that violates the two, violates the two, what Bayans call relatively minor differences here. Mm -hmm. When Christian suggests to follow us, you're going to encounter both of those things. Well, he refused, so Christian and hopeful forsook him and walked on ahead. And what Bunyan presents next is that Bayans joins up with some of his former schoolmates, their names, Mr. Hold the World, Hold the World, not Hold the World, Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All. Very interestingly, they were the products of their schoolmaster, an individual named Mr. Gripe Man. Now, I, I think we need to stop on this, and you might do well to write a little note. Yes, you can write something here today. A little note in the right-hand margin there, right next to the Mr. Gripe Man. Gripe equals to grab or clutch. So Mr. Gripe Man is Mr. Man who grabs or clutches something. Not a man who gripes all the time in our popular usage or understanding of the word gripe. Well, he was the teacher of these individuals, and Mr. Gripe Man, as their professor, had taught them the art of getting by putting on the guise of religion. Look religious, and you will, re you will achieve things. You'll get things. Just look religious. Now, you know, we, we live we live in a time when a lot of these things have changed, although we turn back the calendar a few decades, you know, and we see things a little differently back then. But, you know, back uh, not that many decades ago when campaign literature was sent out, and, you know, you guys, when it's getting close to time to vote, you're going to get a lot of mail from candidates, aren't you? And it's going to be talking about the candidates. You know, it was more fashionable, should I say, back seemingly not that long ago for someone to put, you know, he is a an elder at such and such a church or, you know, serves in such and such a capacity. There. I don't think that's so much the case anymore. It's not. 
Casper? When you look back, for example, at Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany had a Christianity called Positive Christianity, which was basically a Nazification of, of the gospel where Jesus was made an Aryan and all that. And it was important to the system, and that religion was tolerated. And when you look at our world today, I don't know how many churches I'm driving by that have a rainbow flag on their sign. And there is a form of religion because I think people are inherently religious and seek a justification for the way that they live. So I think the principle of looking religious still applies, but not in a way that, like what you mentioned decades ago, that they would appeal to yeah, remember, Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Greitman is is saying to them here, um, the guise of religion. You put on the guise of religion. You know, put on a mask. You know, what what does the mask make us? Hypocrite. A hypocrite is exactly right. <laughs> the mask makes us a hypocrite. But put on a mask or a guise of religion, and if that'll get you ahead. More power to you. He influenced these guys and buy-ins as well. So the next thing, the next thing here. Um, when asked why they couldn't all travel together on pilgrimage, buy-ins said that Christian and hopeful were, and and I put a little asterisk next to this next little description of things that he puts here. Christian and hopeful were too rigid were too determined to rush on their journey, no matter the conditions, were willing to hazard all for God, and were willing to hold on to their beliefs even if all others are against them. I like this, don't you? I'd say this is a feather in their hat, you know, or four feathers in their hat or whatever right here. So, you know, that, that's the way Christian and hopeful are we're not like that, says Byens to his to his friends here. Um, next thing, Mr. Hold the World said, I like my religion best when that will stand with the security of God's good blessing to us. And then used, or rather misused, three examples from Scripture to bolster his case. And, of course, the names are given here. <laughs> How interesting. The names that we suggested at the very beginning of the lesson here, before we started into the chapter, Abraham, Solomon, and Job, who, and again, we realize the complexity of, of Solomon's case here, but were all genuinely godly men when God blessed them with riches. Genuinely godly men. When, when we read right here that these individuals are used by Mr. Hold the World as biblical examples, they are misused. Beware of using the scriptures to support something when the scriptures have been twisted to do so. 
misusing the scriptures. The misuse of the scriptures, scripture twisting, is one of the most dangerous and despicable things. Scripture twisting. Larry? I was thinking, uh, reading here in Luke, and I think we, we talked about peace on earth, goodwill towards men, right? There in Luke 12, 51, do not suppose that I came to grant peace on earth, I tell you, but rather division. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really yeah. Yeah, right, right. There there are dilemmas. There are there are there are paradoxes uh, in these things. But good point, Larry. Good point. Um where are we going next? Next is a most interesting thing. Bayens and his compatriots talking together. Uh a question is proposed for them to discuss among themselves. And, and the question is coming on the screen here. And you have to read it slowly and carefully. But the question is this. If a minister or a businessman has a chance to get ahead by appearing more zealous for religion than he really is, can he not do this and still be considered honest? That's their question. That's their question. Well, they, you know, they discuss it at length in here. And, of course, their conclusion is, well, sure. Well, sure. Um, Christian speaks with respect to that, because after these guys have discussed it and all come to the conclusion, well, sure, that, that's okay to do. That, that's a favorable thing to do. Then they say, well, let's catch up to these two guys ahead of us, Christian and Hopeful, and ask the same question. See what they say. See what they say. Well, Christian speaks to this. And the essence is, the bottom line is, Christian says, only heathen, hypocrites, devils, and witches could be of such an opinion. Now, you, you precede that in your notes here toward the bottom of this page. The worldly wisdom and logic that they, Bayens and his associates, used to answer the question was such that not even Satan could improve upon. But it was an answer that they all agreed upon and decided to assault Christian and hopeful. So, Christian says, and it's a little bit more spelled out on your notes page here, although fully expecting to put Christian and Hopeful into confusion and thus defeat them, Christian completely amazed them by declaring that only heathen like Hamor and Shechem. Now let's pause on that for a minute. (coughs) Hamor and Shechem. What could you tell me about that? I have the scripture reference here. Hamor and Shechem. Hamor and Shechem. Who are they? Well, I, I see the, I hear the flipping of pages, so let's go back to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. Uh, there's, there's aspects, aspects of uh, this account here, which we probably will not mention, or uh, because they're not fully pertinent to the case here, but. In chapter 34, verse, 
you know, here, here's the way the chapter begins. You have a heading in your Bible above chapter 34. What is it? The defiling of Dinah. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. That's the beginning of the whole thing. And he can't live without her. And the Israelites, of course, were, to say, upset about that and would certainly not agree to this at all. But, you know, as you drop into this without going into all the details, the Israelites come up with this, what they thought was a clever plan that made them a stench in the land. If you guys will all get circumcised, then, then we can consent. And what happened? Well, they all agreed. They all agreed to get circumcised. And as the scriptures say, while they were still hurting, <laughs> they were still in the recovery stage and not really able to do much. What did the Israelites do? They slaughtered them. They slaughtered him. Is that a feather in their cap? Certainly not. Certainly, certainly not. But anyhow, that, that is mentioned. Maybe, maybe an interesting and somewhat strange example. But the second example is hypocrites like the Pharisees, devils like Judas, uh, and, and Judas is specifically mentioned by Christian here as being the one who was the treasurer of the twelve, the treasurer who apparently made unwarranted withdrawals from the bag, you know, sad. And witches like Simon the Sorcerer. Who is this Simon the Sorcerer? Simon the Sorcerer, or sometimes called Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. What did Simon do? Simon, to make a long story short, but Simon offered money to Peter and John so that he might be given the ability to lay his hands and give the gift of the Holy Spirit, like he saw them doing. And what did Peter say? Your money perish with you, because you have neither part nor lot in this matter. So that's the specifics, the greater details on the specifics that Christian is talking about when he says... Only heathen, hypocrites, devils, and witches could be of such an opinion. And he gives a scriptural example for, for every single one of them. Uh, to answer the question as you have is heathenish, hypocritical, and devilish. And if you look in your notes at the top of the page... The further words are, and your reward will be according to your works. And so they separated once again. Christian and hopeful went on ahead. We don't have anything to do with you. We don't have anything in common with you. Even though you say you're on the road to the celestial city, just like we are. Nope. Well, the next thing that we find here is that they come to... The plane called Ease, I don't really have a slide for this, 
it was a delicate plain where they went with much content, but it was narrow and they were quickly through it. It's, it's like something is inserted here and why is this even inserted here? Here I think is a good explanation of it. Does not this clearly indicate that Bunyan is emphasizing that a Christian should not expect for there to be much time for ease in this world? Remember that Christ told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do we ever experience ease in this world? Yes, we do. We do. God grants us times of ease. Remember, when Christian was climbing the hill difficulty, what did he come to halfway up the hill? The arbor that was put there for pilgrims to rest at. Not for pilgrims to fall into a deep sleep and lose their role. But God put it there. The Lord of the way put it there. There are times of ease, but don't expect a life of ease. So that brings us to Demas and the hill Lucre. Lucre. What is the adjective that I, it, it sticks in my head when I hear the word lucre? What is it? Filthy lucre. Who did I first hear that from? Probably from my mom. <laughs> Probably way, way back when I was a wee lad. That, that adjective, that defining adjective, sticks in my head. At the end of the plain, there was a little hill called lucre. In the hill was a silver mine, a silver mine. Some travelers were lured to see the mine, but went too near the brink. There was a cave-in, and they died. Others were maimed and never recovered. A certain gentleman named Demas, Demas, stood next to the mine, beckoning for strangers to turn aside, and with a little digging, be richly rewarded. How interesting is it, you guys, as we read the story, that Hopeful was ready to go and see. Hopeful's ready to go take a peek. Let me have a look at this. Christian warned him that treasure is a snare to those that seek for it, seek it, for it hinders them in their pilgrimage. Christian called to Demas and asked him if it was dangerous. Demas said, not very. And couldn't keep from blushing even as he said it. Isn't that interesting? Interesting little detail. Demas said, ah, not very dangerous here. And blushed when he said it. Couldn't say that with a straight face. Demas tried again to lure them, but Christian said, you are an enemy to the right ways of the Lord of this way and have already been condemned for your own turning aside. Now let's stop and think about that for a minute. Demas, this character that he names who is beckoning people to come inspect, uh, come investigate the silver mines on the hill Luther. What can you tell me about Demas from scripture now? Demas. He was the one that forsook Paul because the wealth he was more attracted to wealth. Right, exactly. Where, where do we read that? The references in your notes here. Second Timothy. Second Timothy. And, and and as I read this, and I've read it many 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 times, of course. But as I read this, I, I can't help but feel 
the pain in Paul's heart as he wrote it. Why? Well, I didn't put the scripture reference down there, but if you go back to Colossians chapter 4, maybe you even want to write this, this reference in your notes at this point, Colossians 4.14, I, I think it's very, very significant. Matter of fact, let's let's take a look at that. Take a quick peek at that. Colossians 4:14, beginning with verse 7 in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is mentioning a number of individuals who had various associations with him, like verse 7, Tychicus, verse 10, Aristarchus, in verse 10 also, Mark. In verse 11, an individual named Jesus who is called Justice, or Jesus Justice, not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus Justice. Uh, He mentions my friend Epaphras, verse 12. But he comes to verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Of all these various companions, he mentions Luke, and you know how Paul how close Paul was with Luke. Very, very close. And almost in the same breath, in the same sentence, he says, Luke sends his greetings to you, so does Demas. Demas, it seems, with just those few words written about him in Colossians 4.14, Demas was one of Paul's fellow workers at that point. No reason to think otherwise. But now... When you come to this reference that I have given there, 2 Timothy, and let me read this a little bit more fully now, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Let me read to you beginning with verse 9 of 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, he's writing to Timothy, and remember this is Paul's last epistle, and Paul sees the end of his life coming soon. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What a sadness that Paul must have felt when he wrote that. At William Hendrickson, whose commentaries I love and who was so influential to me in my years of teaching, William Hendrickson said, He paraphrases it kind of as Paul saying, Demas has left me in the lurch because he fell in love with his present world. And he went to Thessalonica. Now, since we're there, read a little bit further. It says Crescens has gone to Galatia, and there's no reason to think that Crescens has gone for any other reason than on gospel business. Same also with Titus. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. And then verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Right again, in the same general context of where Demas is mentioned, Luke is mentioned, but what, what, give me chills to read this. Only Luke is with me. Luke was with Paul at the very end. At the very end, even though nobody else could be with him because some had forsaken him, some just weren't available because they were involved in other gospel ministries, but Luke is right by my side. Wow. Uh, the last thing on that particular point in the notes is this. Christian further says that Gehazi was his grandfather. <laughs> Gehazi is your grandfather, Demas. Who is Gehazi? Somebody tell me about Gehazi. Gehazi was the servant of 
Elisha. What is the scenario? What is the miracle that Elisha has just performed? Naaman the Syrian. Yes, Naaman the Syrian leper had been cured of his leprosy by following the direction of Elisha and going and dipping himself in the Jordan. And when he obediently did that, which he wasn't inclined to do at first, when he obediently did it, his skin became like the skin of a baby. And Naaman had brought a whole retinue of camels and servants and everything with a whole lot of stuff to reward the man that could cure him of his leprosy. And he now offers it to Elisha. And does Elisha receive it? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And when Naaman and his retinue leave, Gehazi waits till Elisha goes in the house probably, and he takes out after them, comes up with a story about we need a little bit of this because there's some sons of the prophets who have some needs here. And he made up a story and got not all the stuff, but got a good bunch of this stuff, took it home, probably put it in his house. What was Elisha's question to him? Where have you been, Gehazi? <laughs> Where have you been? Ah, nowhere. Did not my heart go with you? Elisha knew exactly. Gehazi coveted the riches that Naaman the leper had brought with him. And what happened to Gehazi? He became a leper. He did. Well, last arrowhead under this, when Bayans and his money-loving friends came by and heard Demas beckoning to them, they responded without hesitation and were never seen again in the way. Very apropos, last look at Bayens and his folk. One last part of the story here. <clears throat> this is a great illustration, isn't it? By the side of the highway, Christian and Hopeful see a woman who appears to have been transformed into the shape of a pillar. Hopeful noticed some writing in a strange language on the head. Christian, because as, the, as, as John Bunyan describes it, Christian, who was, I guess, the more educated of the two, he looked at it and discerned, deciphered what it said, and it said, remember Lot's wife. Now, as I, I have to confess to you, I think we're doing great time-wise, and I amazed all of you doing three pages today. I know that. You don't have to confess this to me afterwards. I know that. I couldn't help but remember. I may have told this story before in Sunday school. Those words, remember Lot's wife. Way back, before I came to teach at Clearwater, I was teaching at Shelton College over in Cape Canaveral. And one of the classes I was teaching was homiletics to a small group of young men who were Bible majors. It's a preaching class and everything. And at one point in that class, every one of the students is assigned a text and has to preach a sermon to the class on that text. And one young man in the class, I remember his name, but I won't say it. You won't know from Adam who it was. 
But he was also one of my Greek students, and he was not a bad Greek student at all, but he had the most horrible time pronouncing Greek. Very difficult time pronouncing Greek. His assigned verse for the homiletics message was, remember Lot's wife. And for some reason, known only to him and to God, he chose to recite that verse in the Greek every time he mentioned that verse in the course of the message. And the Greek verb there, Daniel, is mnemonuete, which is not the easiest word to pronounce anyway. <laughs> mnemonuete. Every time he pronounced it, he pronounced it differently. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, the students in the class, are all, we're seated around the chapel in different places, so he has to make contact, you know, with eye contact with all different kinds of places. And the guys are starting to get really entertained by that. And I'm sitting way in the back, taking notes and everything, and I have a timer back there to let him know when his time is running out. And after, after the message was over, Barton talked to me, and he said, I looked around, and the guys were laughing, and he said, I thought, I'll look back at Mr. Carver and get my composure back. And he looked back at me, and I was laughing. <laughs> I, I, I remember it like that class was the hour before this. But anyhow, back, back in our notes right here. Remember Lot's wife. They concluded that this was the pillar of salt that she was turned into at the destruction of Sodom. When she looked back with a covetous heart. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. You know, uh, Steve mentioned Sodom this morning in the message and the judgment that came on Sodom. And by God's grace, Lot was warned to come out of Sodom. Lot's wife was told, don't look back. Fire was falling on the city to utterly destroy it. And she looked back and became a pillar of salt. She looked back with a covetous heart. The pilgrims talked about lessons learned. Hopeful lamented that he was so foolish and was not himself turned into a pillar of salt. So foolish in that he was ready to go inspect the silver mine. You know? They also talked about God's judgment on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their confederates. But the last picture that we have in this particular section before we move into the next session is the Pleasant River. The Pleasant River. They came to a pleasant river with fruit trees and enjoyed several days rest, continuing their journey. The way became rough and they became discouraged. How sad are those words? to end this. The way it became rough, it's, as Bunyan says, because their feet were tender or sore because of all their journey and the road starts to get rough and their hearts begin to get discouraged and where is this going to lead to? Well, the next chapter, the next chapter, you continue reading and if we should pursue this next week, will be giant despair and doubting castle, which has long, 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 long been a favorite part of Pilgrim's Progress for me. Long. 
Why? Because I've been in Downey Castle. I've been there. I've been to Downey. Not, you know, I've been there. Maybe you have to. Giant Despair and Doubting Castle. Doubting Castle. Just the next section. And if perchance you have seen the Revelation Media uh, cartoon type version of this and everything, I laugh when I see the wife of Giant Despair depicted there. I'll bring my storybook in so we can pass that around. That's almost as good as the, the, the jury at the trial depicted. But I, let me conclude this, and amazing that we should get finished here on time. Absolutely amazing. I'm more amazed than any of you. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is not a chapter that we read about and say, well, you know, woe to all the rich folk. I don't have any problems with any of these things. This book, which I love reading the chapters on, Alexander White's look at some of the characters here. Listen to the way he begins this chapter. In no part of John Bunyan's ingenious book is his strong sense and his sarcastic and humorous vein better displayed than just in his description of buy-ins and in the full and particular account he gives of the kinsfolk and affinity of buy-ins. And then he starts talking about them. He is just amazed at the wit and even humor in the choice of the names and the involvements of these people. Listen, my last word to you and to me. Beware of covetousness. Beware of covetousness. What? Covetousness. Beware of covetousness. None of us are immune from being affected by covetousness. None of us. Lord, thank you for helping me and preparing the lesson and presenting the lesson today. Lord, some sobering stuff here for us. Things that can be a a temptation to us, and yet we see it depicted in characters that we say, oh, what a sorry lot they are. Uh, Lord, we have to confess with hopeful that you've been merciful to us at times when our hearts could have been carried away seriously into covetousness to the point where it would bring destruction even. Lord, we love you. We love your word. Thank you for so many graphic pictures in your word to guide us in how we should walk and please you. Now bless us as we go forth from here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.